Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, it cares Levert. It's cold. Levert. Back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday. Shot clock down to six. Finds one. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. I'm joined as always by my co-host and colleague, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm excited to have a hype cast. Earlier in the season, we had a pain cast. I think after the Pacers had that really miserable loss to the Heat at home, and now they've won a road game for the first time in almost exactly two months at Crypto.com Arena. So this is the hype cast. Yes, Crypto.com Arena, which is still, it's just, it's the exact same arena, just with rebranding. I always, I always love how that stuff turns out. Um, We got Isaiah Jackson minutes yesterday. We got Another solid Chris Duarte game. We got a Pacers win on the road, which hasn't happened since, well, it hasn't happened since last year, if I want to throw in a dad joke. And it hasn't happened since November, which was uh, somehow feels like longer than it's actually been and shorter than it's actually been since a road win. Um, And coming against a team that fancies itself as a playoff team, sure does not look like it after watching last night's game and a lot of their recent games as well. But um I guess first thing I'll ask you right off the bat, what stood out to you the most about this game? Um, because I was not expecting a win headed in. Oh, I'm throwing a curveball. I'm throwing Ooh. a curveball right off the bat because you made me answer a power <laughs> ranking in in live time on the last pod while I sounded like what I imagine, you know, transforming into a buffer symbol sounds like. So um, here we go. You are going to power rank the best things about that game. Oh, and I'm going to list the ones that I have come up with. So number well it's not number one because i'm just giving you things to list so the first one is the lakers defensive matchups in the fourth quarter and overall defensive strategy that is one the next one is the pacers closing lineup the emergence of the switch everything lineup um sabonis making the three on the bad ankle to put them up eight Lavert's four-point play that tied the game 85-85, and um, Brogdon doing Brogdon things. This is very difficult. Um, I would like to go out on the record and say this is harder than the one I gave you. Um, actually, probably not. The one I gave you was pretty tough in retrospect, but I really did enjoy that one. So hopefully everyone enjoys this one as much as that one. Um, so I guess – the first thing is how I want to tackle this because coming at it from, from not a fan's perspective, I guess that does change it up a little bit. Um, number one for me, like, I guess if I'm going top down, I Brogdon doing Brogdon things has to be number one for me because especially like even in the first half yesterday, he looked, his jumper looked flat. Um, he still felt like he was changing up his stride length a little bit because his, his Achilles looked uncomfortable to him. But then the second half, like, I mean, he was doing Brogdon things. He looked fantastic in the second half, um, was really getting going in the pick and roll, getting downhill. His floater push shot was there for him. Um, just looked like himself again, which was really awesome to see because it's the first time in a while. Um, I think the next one for me has to be the emergence of the switch all lineup. Um, the first time that I saw Ajax switch out onto Russ, I was like, oh, we're doing this. Like, this is happening. And then it happened again. I was like, oh, my God, it's happening again. And then 
I, you know, I keep watching him. Like I, I make notes, like Ajax, which is on the rust. And then I, I keep watching the rest of the lineup and I'm like, this is kind of the shit. Like, this is awesome. I like, yeah, there's the note I have down Malcolm Brogdon, Justin holiday, Chris Duarte, Tory Craig and Ajax. They did struggle a little bit offensively, partially because Malcolm didn't have a shot going in the first half. And it looked a lot better offensively in the second half. Ajax still has to figure out what he's doing offensively at times. You could see guys directing him to go, go places. He's got to figure out where he is, you know, spacing wise, but that defense sparked a, a, a really important run for them getting back into the game when it looked like it could get out of hand a little bit. The Lakers were close to getting a double-digit lead. Um, I think they had a 9-2 to run pulled off um, in that first half with this lineup. Um, the zone, when they started, they ran a zone a little bit too. Uh, at least I thought it looked like a zone in watching. Um, part of it could just be some guys being in the wrong place, but um, I loved that. That was that was so fun to watch. It was a really nice wrinkle to see, and I think it really helped them figure some footing out defensively. Um, Can I hop in and just talk yes, about, definitely. Like, like I'll just I'll just bounce off of your rankings while you go and just say that like yeah, I thought that that was definitely. I mean, I thought the defensive strategy from the Pacers the whole game. I know that LeBron had thirty points, but um, after he was hunting them a little bit early and getting a few switches against Sabonis, and also the Lakers were just making like some really ridiculous threes. Like I thought it was funny after the game. Cause Karis had a quote where he said, Russ hit some early threes that kind of had the score in their, in their favor. And we knew that would kind of even out later in the game. And it did, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, and then THT like made that step tough step back in the corner and LeBron made the, the side step against the switch against the bonus. But like to the point they were, the Lakers were running minutes there, which I thought was a little bit weird that, you know, they started with Dwight Howard and LeBron and a lot of the time lately, especially in the game against the Pacers, they closed the last, like, I don't remember how many minutes and the overtime with LeBron at the five when they were like taking both of them out. And then they were playing mellow or Stanley Johnson at like nominal five in those minutes. So the Pacers just completely downsized. And then they were, they were in a zone off of make and they were switching everything off of a miss. So I felt like the zone kind of threw them off rhythm. There was even t- one time where LeBron did come in at the five in that second quarter, and you could tell he wasn't entirely sure what coverage they were in, and then he didn't get into the paint because they had been flip-flopping between the two. Plus, it just kind of, you know, the Lakers started out making five threes in the first quarter, and then they made six for the rest of the game. So they didn't play a lot of zone in the second half, and I did think the switch everything lineup had some mistakes in the third quarter where, like, you know, Ajax went and covered something in the paint. And Jeremy was like, well, I was here and now I'm going to rotate back out. And they both went out. And then there was, there was another miscue where I didn't think it looked quite as sharp as it did in the second quarter, but like just to see Isaiah Jackson get minutes at all and to have him thrown in, in that type of setting. And it made a lot of sense for what they were trying to do. And, and for the Pacers, who's been a team who's never really had a lineup where they could throw all five guys out there and reasonably switch across positions. I mean, I think that LeBron did hunt Justin once in the post among those five and got a foul maybe, but um, yeah, that, that was a special part of that game, but you can continue with your. Yeah. Ranking. Well, just like one last thing off of that, it just felt like not even just that lineup, but last night it felt like one of the first times um, this season where they were able to really get stops uh, obviously not at will. Like they, I mean, like you mentioned, LeBron was fantastic, but I think a lot of people will point out those those shots that THT and – I mean, yeah, specifically THT and LeBron hit like probably five or six shots, many of them on Domas. But, like, Domas kept them in front of him. He forced them into difficult setbacks. Like, those – like, for LeBron, I think you can you can 
at least talk yourself into saying that's a good shot for him or, or a decent shot for him. But like TSG has not been awesome as a pull-up shooter this year. So I thought those were good shots that he was able to force them into. You, you live with those. Um, and well, like, yeah, exactly. Like going off the Karis quote, like, okay, those hit, you know, they're not going to fall later in the game because that's just how it works for the most part. Yeah. And I thought too, I mean, later on, they weren't really willfully giving up those switches with Sabonis. Mm-hmm. They were, they were doing more show and recover in the second half. And then, like go back and watch that game and compare it to the first game they played against Milwaukee when they were trying to guard Giannis with Miles and Sabonis and Goga and their loading was awful at Giannis's pickup points. Last night they're loading and pinching in when LeBron had a had a touch. I mean, if oh, yeah. if they, Tori and yeah. Domas were so good together, like they, yeah, uh, like Tori just. The, I mean, Tori's offensive game was rough. I think he went two of twelve last night. Um, the three really just hasn't been there. He's five of 21 from above the break since, de- since December 25th, which has been rough, but like what he and Domas were able to do defensively together in tandem was, was fantastic. Like, I think they really were able to put together some stops to that. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I was just like, Oh yeah. I mean, I have, I've you loved could see it that when, because everybody else was switching. So mm-hmm. if they switched, then they would load to the elbow or wherever LeBron was. And they did a pretty good job of shadowing. Like you said, I mean, by the fourth quarter, I think he just kind of ran out of gas because he went yeah. three of eight. And the, what was funny is I like, counted up this morning. I mean, and again, some of the Lakers strategy was just like inexplicable, which we're going to get to mm-hmm. in, in this ranking eventually. But, um, LeBron went three of eight in the fourth quarter and here's who he took shots against four against Torrey Craig, one against Levert, two against Sabonis, one of which was in transition. And the other was when they were still playing Stanley Johnson and Torrey Craig was just like, yeah, I don't care about you. And that's what you're saying. He, he, he peeled off of Stanley Johnson on the perimeter and helped Sabonis at the rim and they got to stop and one with 3.7 seconds left to play against Jeremy Lamb. How the Pacers had Jeremy Lamb in the closing lineup and LeBron wasn't just repeatedly calling for his man to screen. I I do not know. It was like he wasn't really hunting those matchups to the same extent that he was early. And I don't know if he just, like I said, ran out of gas because he was playing some at the five earlier. And then when he later on, I mean, I, they were just putting him on Torrey Craig at the other end, which we're also going to get to. But um, yeah, I think that that Torrey had a pretty good defensive game. I mean, they made it harder on LeBron to get to 30 and this game than what he did in Indy and through the overtime, you know, in the prior matchup where they were, you know, just letting him get switches against Sabonis and Miles. And then they were having to either bring a double that they didn't rotate out of well or they just weren't loading as well. But yeah, I mean, it was like night and day between what they did against LeBron last night and what they did against Giannis in that Milwaukee game. Definitely. Um, gosh, sorry. That's two down. Um, number. Oh yeah. No, that was two. Number three for me would probably be. This is so, this, this is very tough to do in the moment. I can't believe now I feel bad for doing this earlier in the week. Um, I think I'll go with the Sabonis three um, because that was awesome to see like him hitting two threes off of pops, which has just not really been the regular for him this year. Um, The leg flare out was back a little bit. I don't know if that was because of the ankle, but that's like something he's toyed with all year. Um, But yeah, hit the, hit that big three last night. I think you have to throw that one up there. It can't not be in the back half because that was a huge part of the game. I mean, what did you think overall? I mean, it was kind of, unfortunate that the ankle sprain I'm trying to look Mm -hmm. at what minute mark the ankle sprain I mean obviously it's always unfortunate when anybody sprains their ankle but the specific play where it happened he had 
trying to find it in my notes. Yeah, he was being fronted at the elbow inexplicably and was like pretty wide open to get a lead in pass and Duarte didn't see it. Yeah. And he ended up dribbling off of it and like taking a really bad fall away. But Sabonis was then in position to rebound because he had been being fronted. So he got the rebound, but he was being swarmed and then landed on the ankle. And that was with 456 left to play in the fourth quarter. So he played five minutes on what looked to be, to me, a high ankle sprain. So like, first of all, what are your thoughts on him playing on the ankle? Yeah. I mean, either way, what, what were your thoughts that he stayed in the game and played on the ankle? I was surprised. Um, to be honest, like, I, I guess I should say I am, and I'm not surprised. Like, um, I was surprised in watching because it looked bad when it happened. Like it, it, it definitely looked like a painful sprain. Like it didn't just look like a, you know, bumping. Um, like it looked like very clear, like, Oh yeah, he should probably come out of the game, but also too, it probably hadn't swelled up yet. So, you know, that's the kind of thing where if you get right back on it, like he did, he wasn't really down for very long. You can kind of hobble along and convince yourself that it's okay. But like, once you actually go and sit down, you're like, Oh shit, this thing's like bruised to hell. And, uh, I can't really walk that well. So, um, I was surprised and not surprised, I guess. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I really don't want to keep bringing stuff up about the medical team, but it just, the, the team has been so weird with injuries this year. Like we'll talk about miles later and in, in his update. Um, but like, even like Malcolm playing on Achilles, like, I don't, I don't know if you feel the same, but I felt like he very clearly just looked kind of hobbled. Malcolm looked very clearly hobbled in the first half. He looked better in the second half as he, you know, round in form. Obviously, we're not medical professionals, but it just, especially with where this team is at at 15 and 29, 16 and 29 now, like it just, the injuries are weird, man. Like, I, I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah, I thought that Brogdon looked heavy mm-hmm. um, on that foot, particularly because of how much he, I mean, and he, he likes the one legged yeah. floater, obviously, but I mean, he wasn't wanting to do it off of the right, I felt like. Like in spots where, you know, in prior games, it might have just been a legit pull one, two, pull up two into the mid range. He was turning it into like an eight foot runner off of his left that I felt was a little bit telling. And yeah. then like, but as you say, then there was other ones late where it looked like he had like a little bit of extra burst to get to the rim. I thought his playmaking was pretty good in that game. And I yeah, think very... maybe in part that was because of the pocket Achilles. passes, right? Pocket and passes. I, I genuinely think that part of that might've been because of the Achilles. Cause he didn't yeah. quite have like, especially early, he didn't look like he quite had the same juice. So then he was having to scan the floor to see where he needed to get the ball. So, um, I don't know what entirely the situation is there, but they clearly had him on a minutes restriction. I think they said that he was only allowed to play in the mid twenties, which is why he didn't come back in the fourth quarter. Plus like they were just cooking the way they were. So they left things alone, but in the Sabonis case, like, I don't know what other damage. I mean, it's probably never a great thing when you're having to limp. Cause I mean, he was clearly in pain towards the back yeah. end of those four minutes, which is what made it even more hilarious that they weren't like hunting some of that more because like you had Jeremy lamb on the floor and Sabonis on a bad ankle. But um, regardless of that, like, I think it speaks a bit and it's not because like I look, you know, I would never look down at somebody if they were hurt and they came out of a game, but like, all this stuff has been circulating about, you know, him being checked out and this, that, or the other. If you thought legitimately like, well, I'm going to be out of here in, in two weeks, I'm going to be traded. Why would you continue to play on a high ankle sprain in a, in a game where your team's lost one of nine games? 
And I knew after the interview, he's just like, you know, I love to play this game and I'm a competitor and I want to be out there. And I think that that's something that shows up about him pretty regularly. I mean, he, yeah. he gives it everything he has. Is he always going to be like, do I think he can check LeBron in isolation for an entire game? No. But um, I think that says quite a bit and it kind of suggests to me, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen in two weeks, but I also tend to think that if the Pacers were really seriously taking offers on Tomantis Sabonis, they wouldn't have cared if he said he wanted to stay in the game. Yeah. That's kind of what I took away from that. I think that you would have been like, well, you know, we might be moving you and you just had a significant ankle roll and look like you're about ready to vomit after you stood up. So we're going to go ahead and let you go to the back and get that checked out, or at least look at it over here. And he never came. I mean, he never even came out. So um, yeah, that was kind of my general thought on that, but that was, you know, everything he did down the stretch when you're playing on that type of an injury, I mean, was pretty, pretty gutty. No, I agree. Um, I'm not sure what to take away from it trade wise. Just, uh, again, we'll take, we'll talk more about that in a little bit, but um, yes, um, I'm right there with you. Just great, great performance all around from him yesterday. Um, so number four for me, I mean, I guess we can go Pacers closers. Um I, I think actually, yes, I noted this. Where did I have this note down? Um, it was at the end of the third. So it's after Malcolm's already been out. Um, I think, yeah, it was after Malcolm came out already um, in the third. I, I put, and it was when Jeremy was out there. It's not meant as Jeremy Slander, but I put, would really like to see Kiefer again. Um, I don't know if you felt similarly. Like, I understand why they want Jeremy out there. Um or at least the idea of why they want Jeremy out there. Cause I don't really think it's, it, it, it has come through to fruition for the most part when he's played. Um, like I just would rather see them bring out Kiefer have extra ball handling or not even that it's more ball handling, but like, I feel like he's better positioning himself off the ball, moving without the ball. Um, he's not, I mean, he doesn't have the same release height and ability to get a shot off like Jeremy's not going to like Jeremy had a really nice drive through contact yesterday um, for like a a quality floater, like in the paint, which like Kiefer's not doing that. But I don't know. I kept just thinking about that yesterday. Like we haven't seen Kiefer play in what, three games now. And I just thought to myself, like, I I don't know. I kind of would just rather see Kiefer out there. So uh, and and tandem with that, Lance didn't play in the second half. I mean, his his minutes – he's had some rough spots these last two games. And it looked like, I mean, I know that Sabonis at practice had mentioned like being able to play more with Lance and that mm-hmm. they did try to, you know, tinker with the rotation. So that Goga came in early in the game so that when Sabonis went to the bench, he could come back in and play with Lance. Lance's jumper obviously hasn't been there. And defensively he's had some issues. He had some issues against in that Clipper game. Um, I think that the thought process behind why Jeremy was playing was because Brogdon was on the minutes restriction, obviously. And then, up until the end of what they ended up doing with which we'll get to the Lakers defensive strategies, but they were doing switching and Jeremy's going to be able to get his own shot to a certain extent um, and make those reads against the switch. But at the other end, they were switching. And as, as much as I don't really understand why the Lakers weren't searching for him more, that was going to, that was going to create more assembly for the Pacers with Kiefer because of how much size he would have been giving up against LeBron or some of the other players. So um, I kind of understood it, but it was just kind of hilarious that it worked. I mean, yeah, no, I agree. Given, given what their record in, in close games has been, and especially when they're trailing after halftime and what their record has been on the road, like, um, yeah, that stood out to me. Definitely. Um, 
All right, so where am I going to go with this one next? Uh, I think I'll go with Levert four-point play. Um, I, I'm not I, – I, like when, when Melo uh, had his little spat and threw the ball at the stanchion, I wasn't I, – I mean, if it, it, it felt like that was coming on all game, um, he was not thrilled uh, as the game went on. Like I think they had, they had some issues communicating on switches. Like there was a wide-open three that got let up. I'm trying to think who hit it. It was Karras. Yeah, Karras yeah. passed the ball to Tory Craig. Um, Mello tried to scram switch Malik Monk onto Tory Craig. I mean, not on Tory Craig, onto Karras Levert. And uh, Malik just kind of stared at him and didn't move. And uh, Karras calls for the ball back from Tory, hits the pull up three. I mean, just a, a standstill three with Mello trying to shift back. And like, I mean, that that happened multiple times with him on the back line or anywhere. Like Melo was not awesome defensively, but I felt he was trying to communicate stuff. Didn't really work out, um, and he was getting very pissed. So I, I, you could see that coming from a mile away, and it was a huge play for the Pacers too, and just rounding out the game. But I mean, um, yeah, I mean the entire context of it was hilarious because I, I mean, part of the reason why the LeBron at five lineup worked so well in Indy was because they put LeBron on Sabonis. And then for whatever reason, you know, the Pacers were like, well, we don't want LeBron to switch onto the ball. So we're just not going to involve Sabonis. And then that's whenever they kind of tried to use miles on mellow to, you know, not great effect as the screen slipper. And then it ended up just kind of being more ISO um, in that fourth quarter. And then they couldn't hit threes out of a lot of those ISO type threes. And in this game, like no offense to Frank Vogel, but I have no idea why Carmelo Anthony, which I mean, this will be your next power ranking. Cause it's the only one we have left, but it goes along with this possession. I have no idea why Carmelo Anthony was guarding Sabonis or why Stanley Johnson was for brief moments. I mean, I guess the thought process was they were going to put LeBron on Torrey and let him kind of roam, but that's why this possession was funny because Torrey Craig was in the corner and Sabonis and Levert are running pick and roll. And they had, they weren't even always switching with Melo. They had Melo in a drop in the pick and roll against Karras on, I don't know how many of those possessions. And LeBron doesn't roam off of Torrey in the corner. Like he just completely stays attached. Levert gets all the way to the rim, makes the layup. Melo fouls him. And then he throws the ball at the stanchion and Jeremy gets the, the um, technical free throw. And then they tie the game at 85, 85. So um, we might as well just go into the the Lakers defensive strategy there. Like, I mean, everything about that was just, I don't know how many more times they were going to look at, at just Sabonis and Karras just running spread pick and roll with both corners filled. LeBron really wasn't doing that much roaming around. That's why I said, I don't know if he just ran out of gas or if he was just frustrated by the overall process and what was going on. But um, some of the lineups the Lakers were playing didn't make a lot of sense to me. And then like, I just don't know if you were going to put Melo on Sabonis so LeBron could roam why they weren't switching. Because, like, that possession you mentioned, like, I took a picture of that this morning because it's just funny because it was LeBron scramming out uh, whoever it was on the weak side that that was, like, the one time where LeBron was attached to Sabonis. And the uh, Torrey Craig had the ball and kind of faked a pass over to Duarte in the corner, and Melo reacted so strongly that he turned his back completely to Karras for the catch-and-shoot three. And I don't want this to take away anything that the Pacers did because, obviously, like, Karras isn't a great catch-and-shoot three-point shooter and he made three of those in the fourth quarter um he had to be making I mean it was an epic heater I mean I think they said that that was the most points scored by a pacer in a fourth quarter so um clearly a good accomplishment by him and Sabonis doing all that on a bad ankle while setting screens and having to come back out and and clear up space for Karras to be able to do that you know all those contributions mattered and they should feel good about that win but I think the Lakers should feel pretty bad about what they were doing over the last like five or six minutes 
Yeah, one thousand percent. Um, like I don't. Yeah, again, I, I agree. I don't want to be too uh, critical and take away from the Pacers, but it's like I just look at what the Lakers are doing overall, and like they really ratcheted up their defense in the, in the Utah game, and, and LeBron played awesome, you know, roaming weak side, but uh, especially just in the last two or three weeks, um, LeBron has really not been playing defense that way, at least not the way that he was earlier in the year or like he was last year. Um, it just hasn't really been there. And their, their entire team D overall has been gross. They have a lot of, I mean, they have just as much stuff going on as the Pacers seem to, or at least more reported. Um, like everything with Frank is so weird. Like, I mean, he clearly is I mean, saying coaching for his job is wrong. Cause clearly he's, he's lost his job already. Like it's just a matter of time until he gets fired. Like, if you're already getting mentioned, uh, like e- even with the Russ thing, like not playing Russ to the end of the game, all like it, it gets reported like, oh, like the Lakers brass signed off on this. I'm like, oh, OK, so he's fired. Like he's he's just they're just waiting until like, they can fire him. Like I it, it, it's that that team is is kind of gross and I have not enjoyed watching them in recent weeks is, is the best way to put it. All right. Well, I think that pretty much sums up that particular game, unless yes. you had something else that you wanted to bring up. No, I think that uh, that that definitely wraps it up for me. Um, good game so we, for the Pacers. A lot to a lot to take away from it. A lot to 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 not take away from it as well. So, if you want to head into yesterday's rumor mill, I suppose we can tread lightly into that. Yes, your favorite part of uh, of the podcast. Yep, rumor mill corner. A great um, time had by all. Yeah. So this has been building for a couple days. Um, Sam Amick of The Athletic, uh, who was formerly a Kings beat writer, um, had reported on one of their one of the athletic pods that the Kings were very active in pursuing trading for Demonis Sabonis and had mentioned that that De'Aaron Fox was on the table for him. I don't remember who broke it yesterday. Um I mean, Jason Anderson from the Sacramento Bee broke it yesterday. Um, he's like the 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 big newsbreaker for for Sacramento. Just for for the listeners, I know you know that Caitlin, but for 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 the listeners, like Jason Anderson is the guy who breaks pretty much everything. is is the big insider um, for the Kings in general. But he broke yesterday uh, in a piece in the morning that the the Kings had been in talks to trade the Aaron Fox or were interested. I can't remember the exact phrasing, but. Um, you know, just mentioned that the Kings were looking to package a deal around De'Aaron Fox for Demonis Sabonis. And then later in the day, after I'd already outlined a piece and I started writing about uh, a Fox Domas trade, what that would look like for both teams. And uh, Sham Sharania puts out that the Kings are focused on building around their core of De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese Albert and have no interest in trading the two. Um, and also mentions in his piece that uh, the Kings would not be pursuing Demonis Sabonis, and especially not that trade involving De'Aaron Fox. And then Sam Amick comes out as well with a piece like a half hour later saying the exact same thing. Um, a lot of smoke screens. I don't want to take anything away from it. That's too new. Uh, like, I, I, I don't want to be unfair to insiders. Um, but it is worth noting, too, like we've seen this stuff happen so many times where uh, – it's just like very clear that this is, it feels to me like Sacramento is just trying to maneuver stuff. And, and if they are going to trade deer and Fox, they clearly want more than has been offered. Um, 
Like, I don't know. We've just seen so many times, like, oh, they're, we're committed to building around the score, and then a trade happens two or three days later. Like, um, clearly things have broken down in terms of the way that, that talks were going. But um, regardless, yes, I think that, that catches everybody up to it. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is pretty definitive here from Shams where it says team sources, mm-hmm. and I don't know which team that's referring to, said any potential deal around Fox for Pacer center DeMontis Sabonis will not happen. So I had listened to Sam Amick on a podcast out of Sacramento, not the one that was on The Athletic a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago, and he talked about how a lot of times in the news-breaking business, how things that they hear might have actually occurred like two weeks ago but then they just then hear about them. So it's possible that this was something that was discussed and both teams were already like, nah. Um, And it only just now came out. But a piece of me did wonder, because I mean, even even the Sacramento Bee like a week ago had said and reported, which Jared Weiss at The Athletic and his own piece about um, the Celtics trade landscape had said that like the Pacers are only considering all-stars in return for Demonis Sabonis, which is also what Jake Fisher had said, and that more or less, like, it's going to take an awful lot for them to move on from him. So um, De'Aaron Fox isn't currently an all-star. So part of me wondered, because they have said, and Sam Amick had said in the past, like, Ben Simmons is their top priority, which I think makes more sense for them personally. So I wondered if they were almost like, and I'm not accusing them of this, but like, it would be beneficial to them to have a stalking horse and put it out yeah. through the media of like, Hey, you know, we might use these assets sixers. If you don't take us up on these offers and we have interest in this other guy. So we're going to let it be known that we might move, you know, De'Aaron Fox and first round picks for Sabonis. And in reality, like, you know, that probably wasn't going to happen. I mean, I don't, I, I, I know that like a lot of Pacer Twitter got super hyped about this. It doesn't, if I'm moving the team's best player, I need to think that it's a complete no brainer. And I don't think that's a complete no brainer with the rest of the roster that the Pacers currently have, but that's just my opinion. And if I were the Sixers, I mean, if I was the Kings, I understand why their priority would be Ben Simmons. Cause I just think that makes more sense for their current state of their team. Yeah. I think my, my big takeaway from it too was like you're mentioning, I uh, like, I liked Aaron Fox a lot. Um, he's had a rough season. He had a very rough start. He's been a lot better recently. They've kind of transitioned his role to be more of a primary scorer than a primary ball handler. As Tyrese Halliburton's taken over more of the playmaking duties. Um, like, I think some people have gotten too down on Fox to a degree, but also I do think you have, like, this is a very clear data point this year. He has uh, kind of regressed as a playmaker or less regressed, but more like they've made – they clearly recognize, okay, Tyrese Halliburton's a better playmaker. We're going to prioritize that over what De'Aaron Fox does for us um, to a degree. And I think that's, you know, that's very noteworthy. Like, even though De'Aaron Fox averaged seven assists per game last year, he's not an awesome passer. Like, he's he's incredible getting downhill. Like, has he might be the fastest guy in the NBA, straight line speed, just remarkable quickness, really good scoring gravity, has a pull-up shot as a mid-range shooter, um, really does not bring anything off the balance as a three-point shooter. And, I mean, teams just go under him ruthlessly. Sometimes it doesn't matter because he's so fast. But point being, like, I don't think it was a no-brainer. If if this is something actually on the table that has been talked about, like, Domas is a better player right now than De'Aaron Fox is. And I don't think that that's – there's much deliberation that needs to go on about that. Um, I think there was a lot going on on Twitter yesterday, like you mentioned. Um, the only way where it really makes sense to me – is if the team is 
Um, and this is how I, I mean, I, I talked about it with a couple of people yesterday. I was like, you know, the only way that that trade makes sense to me, A, I think that the Pacers probably need to get a little bit more back than just Fox, even though the Pacers would have to send more out for salary matching. Um, like maybe it's Jeremy Lamb or something. I don't know. But um, like, unless you have this concept that, okay, Rick is like very adamant. Like if Rick, like I'm just saying, if in trade talks, Rick's like very clear, like, yeah, I don't want to use Domas. Like I think the best, well, clearly he doesn't think it's the best way to use him but um like i don't want i gotta push back on that because they've switched that a lot like the way that the the way over the last probably i mean that that narrative has gotten a little bit overplayed i mean in part because i was harping about it so much at the beginning of the season but that's pretty much switched over the last month and a half like tons is being is being funneled through him now i mean even last night they were using him more at the elbows not as much in the post because of how he was being defended but uh I think that he has been open to it. And I think some of the reason why he wasn't um, and not because stuff was going through miles, but I think some of it was, you know, not fully understanding what the shooting realities were going to be this year, not knowing they were going to shoot the ball quite this poorly. And two, because I mean, no offense, but miles wanted a bigger role. He wanted to be able to do different and other things. And I think that eventually they just went back and realized that like, Hey, this is kind of whack, not using this guy who's a connector at the elbows. And now they're using him more on ball than I've seen either of the prior two coaching staffs. Like, I think he's open to it. He's been doing it. Yeah, no, I just mean like if uh, like he has been doing it more recently, for sure. I just mean more like if he doesn't see that as something that he wants to invest in and build around in the future, which I don't think I would necessarily agree with. Um, and they were like, OK, you know, we don't view him we don't view the maximized version of him as somebody who we want on our team moving forward. I would understand at least like, okay, well, let's not waste that guy and actually do something that we believe in building around. Um, it's not like, again, it's not necessarily a, something that I would agree with, but if you look at it that way and you're like, okay, we'd rather have this ball handling point guard. Sure. Um, but then like you mentioned too, and like you put out on Twitter yesterday, like do you, I, this, this, this roster would need a complete tear down and rebuild um if you're if you're making that trade happen like like i mentioned previously like okay so you're going to have somebody who can collapse a defense for you but again like when he is kicking out and that's been part of the issue with him like he hasn't been awesome with his passing reads like i do think his passing reads have regressed a little bit this year he's so when those those kickouts are happening if he gets all the way to the rim and and gets stonewalled like okay so you have a one third one one shooter shooting above average from three. Uh, the spacing has already been really rough. Like, what is that doing for you? If, if anything, like the team would, I mean, that that sends the team backwards in terms of wins this year. If you're just replacing guys one for one, it's not that simple, obviously. But yeah, I mean, I think we're on the same page here. Like, that's I, I don't for the direction that the team has appeared to be going in right now, that just wouldn't make a lot of sense. If they were going to decide on doing some full teardown and rebuild, I don't think that necessarily makes as much sense either because what De'Aaron Fox is uh, like a year and a half younger than Domas. It's not like there's a huge age difference. Um, it's, it just, yeah, I, that's, that's all I really got. I mean, it's, that. it's not overly compelling for me. I mean, like I said, the Pacers ranked 29th in spot up efficiency. You might be able to make the case that some of those, you know, maybe if Brogdon's 100% for the full season, I think Chris can shoot the ball better than what he's done, and he has been of late. Mm-hmm. I mean, a few people might be able to shift things, but there's just too many times. I mean, we can see it already with Sabonis, and Sabonis is making good reads out of, you know, 
especially over the last like 20 or however many games, whenever he's drawing double teams and it's not going to be the exact same situation, but it's like, okay, well play fast. Well, here's the problem with that. I'm not saying that Rick Carlisle is completely opposed to playing fast or couldn't do it, but it's been like seven years since one of his teams was faster than uh, 19th in pace and in, and not just in overall volume of possessions, but also in like actual time of possession on the shot clock. Um, that's just not really been a fixture of the way that he's coached games. So also I saw this last year and not with a weapon with the degree of speed that De'Aaron Fox has in the open court. But I watched Bjorkren speed up this team last year. They were top five in every category. Top five in time of possession after a defensive rebound. Top five in time of possession after a turnover. Top five in time of possession after a missed shot. Or, I mean, after a made shot. Um, so we've kind of seen that from this roster already and the other problems that it created. And I know that like everybody's like, oh, this roster needs speed. And it's kind of like when we did that power ranking the other day. Like I can see certain spots where Brogdon's burst and handle can be uh, somewhat limiting against like isolation matchups, but that's not the only way that you can attack a mismatch. There's other stuff that you can do in those situations. And I just don't think I would rank speed as particularly high on the list of things that this team is missing out on, especially if you have a coaching staff that isn't, you know, one that's, you know, leans into that as much as maybe was the case, you know, clearly whenever Jaeger was the head coach there and other stuff. And, you know, that didn't exactly lead to, you know, and it's, it's not one for one, obviously there's different roster stuff and we don't know what TJ Warren's doing, but like, has the Kings playing fast produced like a great product? I'm not entirely sure of that, but um, I, it just isn't compelling for me. And I know that the argument on Twitter constantly is like, Oh, well, you're going to get more for Sabonis and they need to move him. And it, you could get this great young guard right now. And are you going to be happy if he leaves in two years or whatever? I'm like, first of all, you don't know what he's going to do in two years. I doubt he even knows what he's going to do in two years. I've used this comparison with you before that, like all we heard for two years with Kevin Durant and Golden State was that he and Kyrie Irving were going to go play for the New York Knicks. Last I checked, neither of them play for the New York Knicks. So I think a lot of times these guys, things change on their current teams things change on other teams. Um, I don't think they always know exactly what they're going to do. So um, I'm not really going to look down, you know, at that. And, and he's not in a contract year next year. So if you wanted to move him, then it would be to me, like, if you're going to move your best player, like I said before, it's got to be a no brainer. Like, even if you're still going to keep in your back of your mind, like even if the Pacers are thinking, Oh, we, we don't see him as, you know, a top option. And to me, that's even semantics because like, I don't think he has to be, you know, Vucevic is a hub. Do you think he's the top option in Chicago? Is he still, you know, and I know he started out the season down, but um, I think he's still pretty helpful. So I, I, I don't really agree with that, especially when Sabonis is only making 18 million. But to me, it's like, if I have this, you know, good asset, I would more be like, um, let's see what happens up in Boston. And even if they think that they want to keep tinkering around the edges, you know, time might be ticking on Jalen Brown eventually, and we could hold our cards and see if we can, you know, swap middles of our rosters there. And I'm not saying that that's a distinct possibility. It's just that I don't think you have to make a deal today for somebody who doesn't necessarily make sense with the other pieces that you already have when something could become available later. That's the benefit of having Sabonis on the roster. You have more time. So, um, it didn't do a lot for me, but it seemed to do a lot more for a lot of the rest of Pacer Twitter. So, yeah. And I think the bigger thing too, like, like you're mentioning, um, I, uh, like, I think a lot gets brought up like, oh, well, Domas can't be like the best player on a championship. You know, like, okay. 
I don't really think the Aaron Fox has shown that either. And I, I, I don't, again, it's not meant as like slander of a guy. Like he's still a very good player with potential and upside. Um, but like, it's not some upgrade or anything. Like I do think he, just because the guy's able to run pick and rolls or um, which Domas has done a little bit, but like, just because somebody's able to be faster or get to the rim more, like it's not there. There are consequences to each thing or not even consequences is the wrong way to put it. But like um, there are differences that like, like, it's like pouring. Have you ever seen those videos where somebody pours uh, there's like one cup of water and then you have like two empty cups and it's like pouring the cup, pouring water into each one. It's like just putting water in different cups. You have the same amount of water different. Like I this is a terrible analogy. It went extremely off the rails, Caitlin, but um, you, you get my point. I mean, I just think that some of it is just kind of old, to be honest. Yeah. Like, I don't really know why, if the Pacers are a team that wants to be a good team, Sabonis is a very good player. I mean, again, look what he did last night, and I can poke fun at what the Lakers did, but what he's done over these last several games, in spite of like, I mean, even some of the Kings articles are like, well, his numbers are down this year. Like, okay. Well, for, you know, 20 some games, he was basically used as a screener so that guys could neglect picks and he was having to find stuff his own way. And for most of the season, he's seeing multiple bodies every game with guys that he's having to coach up on how to cut to the basket and move around him because that doesn't come naturally to a lot of the people on this roster. And he's still giving you what, 1911 and five. Like those, that type of player isn't just going to readily come and sign in Indiana. So again, if I were the Pacers and I'm not, they, they obviously are going to make their own decisions and I don't know completely what's out there in the trade market, but I would sooner find out what happens if we upgrade some of our shooting and search for, you know, twitchier guys who could make the hedge scheme work and see what it looks like. Because by the way, like this team is not going to suddenly be good. Like they got this win over the Lakers. They're still going to be a lottery team. I would be absolutely blown away if they make it into the play-in tournament so you're gonna get potentially a very good pick that you could do something with as well like you it's not just the assets you have right now there's other ways to reshape the roster that you have time to do that and see what's going to happen before you just have to make you know a trade here in the next two weeks of the of the best player on the roster I don't think that you're under pressure to have to do that I tend to agree I know I think John Hollinger said it on Nate Duncan's podcast he replied to me on Twitter and said it like I would be very surprised if they moved Sabonis at this point in time as would I and that's kind of what I was feeling like when I was watching him play on that ankle like I just I don't think that if you're if you were thinking about moving your two-time all-star best player even if he went over to the bench and said, don't take me out, I don't want to come out. If that was even a consideration among the team, I don't think he would have continued to play on that ankle. Yeah, no, I agree. Unless something in the next couple of weeks just comes out and just absolutely blows them away. Like I said, I just, I don't think that the Aaron Fox thing was a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we're, we're definitely in the same boat on that. Um, is there anything else? Oh yeah, we got to hit on uh, Miles' update. Yeah, this is a weird story, if we're being honest. It's a very like, weird story. I, So just to recap for people, if they don't know, um, Miles over the weekend, they, I believe it was at, he didn't practice and they said that his foot had been bothering him. He had felt something the last couple games. And then he was going to go with the team to LA on the road trip. He was obviously there at the Laker game on the bench last night and get a second opinion. And then the Pacers released through the team that he has a stress reaction which is essentially like a deep bone bruise that you need to catch early. So it doesn't become 
a stress fracture and then head into like TJ Warren territory. So they need to be careful with it. But in between all of that, before they went out on the road trip, um, the Mad Ants were playing a game in Fort Wayne. And in the morning, they had assigned Goga Batadze and Isaiah Jackson to play in that game. And then when I watched it, you could see that Goga was in street clothes and did not play. And he was held out because, you know, they were going to need him on the road trip or we now know in retrospect, that's why he was held out because they didn't want to obviously risk him getting injured up in Fort Wayne when they were going to need to go on the West coast uh, road trip. So what was your take of that whole timeline of events and everything else that's gone on with miles here recently? Uh, great question. Uh, it's weird. Like I really, I, I don't have any interest in, in going at his character or, no, um, no, neither do like I. That. And I, I don't, I didn't mean it like you think that at all. I just, uh, I feel like there has been some of that to a degree, which has been frustrating to see. Um, and we've talked about that, so I don't need to rehash it, but uh, it has been really weird. Like in any time when this stuff has gone on, like him going and getting a second opinion in LA, I've never seen that happen. I, I can you remember a time where that's happened with this team? Like other than like Vic getting checked on in Miami? Like I, I don't... Yeah, I mean, I think that TJ McConnell here recently got a second opinion. And that, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think that that's well, yeah, like second opinion thing. isn't weird, but like the coming to the to the on the on the road trip and going to L.A. and sitting on the bench, too. But then the the weirdness with with how he was sitting on the bench, like, I, again, I don't want to take away too much from that. But also it was weird. It was very weird. Well, yeah, I mean, I pointed that out in the article that I thought it was weird in the Clipper game that when the Bally Sports broadcast after the timeout huddle, he was shown sitting in a fan seat underneath the basket, uh, a couple rows behind the camera people like two seats over from him was a person eating nachos. Like, so I don't think it's completely like sometimes if there isn't room, I think guys will sit around the edge of like what continued to be bench, especially with like the COVID spacing of the bench prior to but like to see him sitting over there separately was very weird. And then it was very clear that in that Laker game last night, like you could see him on camera the whole game and he was sitting like two seats over from the coaching staff. So um, I thought that was a little bit interesting, but more so for me was just wanting to know when exactly did the foot start hurting? Because I mean, I mean, back to what I said with Sabonis, it's kind of the reverse situation here because I mean, Rick said he felt something the last couple games. I don't know how long that translates into. I know people were like, oh, well, that might explain why he was playing the way that he was playing. And it might. I mean, defensively, he had been having some struggles and maybe on his three-point shot, you know, that might impact if your foot's sore and how you're stepping into shots and he's missed like 19 of his last 23. So some of it might, but are we talking that it's been going on for like a month? Because like his play has been weird for a while. And even just last week, Like if your foot was bothering you and then you didn't play in the fourth quarter and like the team was aware of him not playing, then why was this ain't P not a thing? Cause like that would just seem somewhat precautionary to me. But then, I mean, he played in the next game against Boston and then he played against Phoenix and not only played against Phoenix, but at the start of the game, they were like force feeding the action through him. They ran the first several plays like for him to get a touch against Jay Crowder in the post to when he got a switch against Booker, he ducked in, um, Chris Paul pulled the chair on him. Like it was several plays there. And then in the fourth quarter, he played to start the fourth quarter, had like a chase down block and then came back in clear and played clear until the last minute and 18 seconds when they were down 18. So um, I know I had people reply and like, it's not me questioning 
I'm just questioning the order of operations. Like I believe that his foot's bothering him. They wouldn't have diagnosed it with a stress reaction if they didn't. But like, when did everybody know about this? Because like playing him down 18, if you're at all considering trading him when he has a sore foot seems very strange, like why that was even happening. And then also why was like, if you knew that his foot was sore and you knew you were loading up for a trip, why was Goga ever being sent to Fort Wayne in the first place? And then suddenly being like, well, you're not dressing. So it just makes me wonder, like, was the train, like, cause I mean, their head athletic trainer was in COVID protocols. Like, were they not fully aware that he was feeling the pain? Cause like, that's the kind of the most charitable explanation I can give for like exactly how all of that transpired. Because like, if we're going to say that like his play could be assessed to that foot, then that leads me to believe like, how long was this going on? Yeah, no, entirely. I, uh, um, I, I don't, I don't really have anything to add to that. Like, it just, like, I've thought personally, maybe this is, you know, maybe, maybe, he's st- well, not maybe, like, he definitely is still unhappy with his role. I feel like that's been pretty clear. Um, and maybe it's just them agreeing to sit him. Like, maybe the foot, it, like, I, I don't want to disagree that the foot is bothering him. I think it has been pretty apparent. And I don't think he's just going to sit to sit. But, like, I think maybe it's just coming to an agreement. Yeah, like, this isn't working out for right now. We're going to sit you for a little bit and just say this is an injury. Even like it, it is an injury, but extrapolating it to a degree, that makes sense. Uh, again, I'm not trying to just. No, I have bullshit, no idea. I mean, I, I'm not trying to speculate. Like... It just seems like like, I mean, it, the fact that he sought a second opinion seemed somewhat ominous. And, you mm-hmm. know, like you said, if it can turn into a stress fracture, it's good that they caught it. It's just that the whole timeline and order of how everything happened seemed um a little bit strange, especially when he was at that game and then he was sitting a few rows behind, but maybe that was just, you know, maybe he was back doing something and then it was just easier to sit over on that side. I mean, he was with the team against the Lakers. So, you know, maybe it's making too much of it, but um, it will be interesting. I mean, just to get your thoughts, like if, I mean, it sounded very much like in the article that Scott wrote that uh, if people read it or I think, I think he made that available. It wasn't behind the paywall that this was, this was going to be coming to an end. Like it it sounds pretty certain that both sides were prepared to move on and get a fresh start. Was that your take from that article? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, It basically seemed like a, a a when not if um, very much so like in terms of it's just going to happen by the trade deadline. Um, Right. So, I mean, in, in the aftermath of that, like, Adrian Wojnarowski, I believe, reported like, you know, the injury itself wouldn't prevent teams from trading for him, but it could depress their value. I know John Hollinger had mentioned in that article uh, a couple of days ago where they were talking about teams that might be on the hot seat, like how hard it can be for teams and in season trades to get information on medicals and have full understanding. But it would more be the case of, you know, if he misses a month, which is what they're saying is probably the expectation, though the team said he would get a scan in another two weeks that teams would also have to factor in like, okay, we're going to get you. You might not be back right away. And then you're going to have to do, you know, reconditioning to get back into shape to join us. And are we going to be willing to, what are we going to be willing to give up for that? I mean, one thing that's interesting is depending upon what team it is, like I know Mark Stein had already said that the Mavericks have kind of cooled on that idea because their defense is surging. But if you look at a team like Portland, like it might almost make even more sense for them to, almost push a little bit harder because, you know, they already have Damian Lillard out for, you know, extended period because of the issues with his 
um, the surgery he had for his lingering abdominal issues. So if they're going to be out, they're like clinging to 10th. I don't know what they are after last night's games in the playing tournament. It kind of behooves them not to be, you know, kind of do the one-year tank and just get out of this season, um, make an upgrade at the center. And if Miles can't play for you, like that's probably not the worst thing. Dame's already going to be out. And then you would be able to upgrade um, Miles over Nurkic next year. And like, I, I believe I had heard some rumblings that like Damian Lillard had actually requested um, Miles and Jeremy Grant, that there were some murmurs coming out of Portland to that regard. So, I mean, people can debate over what they want, what Portland has. My guess is it would have to be a case where they would also be like making trades with McCollum and Rocco to try to re- get other assets because their pick situation is kind of weird. But like just to name a team where like a midseason trade might still make sense in that particular instance, obviously there's also ties between um, the Pacers and the Blazers front office, but that actually makes a little bit of sense because, you know, it's not like Portland's getting him to make a run toward the back end of the season or because they want to try to get into the playoffs. Like I wouldn't think, but I don't know what you were thinking about his overall trade value and how this might impact things. Uh, yeah. Like, I don't, I don't want to, I mean, I'm sure it's, it's impacted it um, to a degree, but I still like, there's no reason to not trade in like, or I, I to, that, that, that'll be the wrong way to put it, but more like, I just don't think this can prevent the team from trading in. Like you, you have to make it work. You have to swallow the pill because again, like this is, this has been building for so long. Like we've talked about, like, I just don't think that this is something that you can wait for um, as, as Scott wrote pretty much too. Like, it's just, it's boiled over. It's come to an end. Like you got to make something happen. So. Um, well, yeah. just because too, like last night, I mean, Ajax and Goga both played. Yes. Like, I think that that's kind of important toward the back end of the season to see if either one of them can pop and what, you know, how does Ajax look at the four or the five? Um, Does he look ready to play minutes next year? Where are they even at on Goga? Does he look like he is a part of the team's future? Um, Those opportunities are only going to be there if you do make a deal. And, you know, if, if there isn't stuff out there because of the injury, and the, the values are greatly depressed, I would put them in a spot. But, I mean, I'm kind of with you. I think that that's something that, you know, they still need to be probably trying to move on because um, of the playing time for younger players as well as just some of the stuff that had been showing up and festering on the court um, and bubbling over in certain circumstances. It just seems like, you know, time for both sides to get a fresh start in that particular situation. But yep. Definitely. Um is there anything else you want to hit on Pacers wise? No, I think that we, I mean, I think those were the three main topics we wanted to get through mm-hmm. the hype cast from the, you know, yeah. first road win in two months and um, covering some of the deer and Fox stuff. Then obviously, you know, not having miles and hoping that his, which, whichever way they go, if, if he's still going to remain on the team or if he is going to be moved, you don't want to see anybody go through an injury. We've already seen him, you know, struggle with the turf toe last year and, and having some of the issues being able to get back into shape last summer and him revealing how hard that was on him. So you don't want to see him dealing with something and yeah. especially glad that it didn't get to the point of what TJ Warren's dealing with. So definitely. Uh, I do want to hit you with a couple random questions to end out. <laughs> if you don't mind, oh, I, I, boy. I make this a thing. Uh, I still have a pull up for this there's one hour left on it on twitter um are capers good caitlin it's uh it's very close right now it's 170 votes it's 50.6 yes 49.4 percent no i am one of the no's i hate capers where are you at on capers i think capers are completely unnecessary exactly what do they add to i mean that's it 
yeah, I mean, there's times where they're, I feel like they're just a trendy thing that gets yeah. thrown into food so that people can feel like they're foodies at times. Yeah. Like, I don't think that they really have much to add to most conversations. When I, when they do get thrown on my plate, I typically don't eat them. Like I usually eat around them. I don't, they're superfluous. Yeah. And I, they just leave kind of a weird taste in your mouth too. I'm not a big fan. Like I like locks, but I get it without capers. I can't stand it. Um, another random question. What non Pacers thing are you most enjoying in basketball right now? Wow. That's a tough one. Um, sometimes I actually like, just as a, like a niche team that I turn on and, and have enjoyed, um, over the last month or so, I like the Minnesota Timberwolves have been fun this yes. season. Um, not just because their starting lineup has like this crazy net rating. And obviously they they had, you know, their COVID stretch, which the COVID stretch was actually pretty fun for that team. Um, Cause you got to see some of their other guys who don't normally get to do as much stuff, uh, get pressed into a little bit bigger roles. But like even recently in the two games that they've played, I, I watched the one, not this the other night, but the prior that they played against the Knicks. And it's like so much fun to watch Jaden McDaniels guard Julius Randall. Awesome. Like it's, it's ridiculous that like, I mean, and I'm not trying to make this sound derogatory, but that's like, if you watch Jack Skellington guard wreck it, Ralph, like, like, I mean, it, it's just so funny to me that like the amount of functional strength that Jaden McDaniels has, like he can prevent Randall from getting into those spots. And I've also watched them play a game against the Mavericks where they had thrown him out on, Jalen Brunson and obviously his offense is a lot of times an adventure and he doesn't always get to do a lot off the dribble because you're not going to do that when he's out there with Anthony Edwards and D'Lo and Carl Anthony Towns and his three-point shot has fallen off some but like you know when you watch the Pacers there aren't a ton of guys who are like you know these you know young potential defenders where you're seeing them figure things out and all the different things that he can do on one possession so like the one against Brunson that I'm talking about like he was on ball executed a switch with cat helped on the switch and then rotated out to the corner, scrammed somebody out, came back up and then used all of his length and positioning to be like weak side rim protector. So I think he's a pretty fun player to watch. And then Chris Finch just does a lot of interesting things offensively um, to work around some of what Carl Anthony Towns' struggles have been as like a post out passer, whenever he's drawing like Vando's defender, I think that he does some creative things. So um, they're kind of a team that if the Pacers are done playing early in the evening that like, Oh, the Timberwolves are on. I might watch that. Yeah, no, I think the Timberwolves have been probably my second most watched team this year outside the Pacers, them and them in Cleveland. Like I've loved Cleveland, but like I was thinking about this yesterday because I watched that next game yesterday. Um, number one, like Jalen Noel has been one of my favorite stories this year. I wrote about him recently. Like he's been, just a blast. Like, like you mentioned with uh, their COVID stretch. I mean, he was a guy who went from looking like he was going to get cut um, because he didn't really have a spot in their rotation. He'd absolutely dominate in the G league. He was basically in like the Goga spot, like um, too good to play in the G league. Cause he'd been awesome. Uh, but just not getting any real run, but he's turned into one of their five best offensive players now because he's somebody who can actually put together, you know, scoring from, from three with his pull-ups like they're just enough He's a good pull-up shooter from two, even like despite not being much of a vertical athlete, like he's really good around the rim. He makes good kickouts. Like he's a capable pick and roll player. Like, like you mentioned, Jaden is, oh my God. Like if the Pacers have some way to get Jaden McDaniels and they don't make it happen, I'll be upset. 
if the Timberwolves give up Jaden McDaniels, I will be upset. Like, I, he is so fun to watch. And it's crazy, too, because he was, like, not at all this kind of guy at at Washington, like, coming into the draft. Like, he was not – like, he was always a top-flight scoring prospect. Like, that was his sell as a as an AAU player and, and coming in out. I think he played at Federal Way in, uh, in Seattle um, before he went to um, – before he went to, to, to UW and like it just to see him become this guy has been kind of insane because he's done it since like his first game rookie year. And then the other thing I was thinking too, like Ant Edwards is the most mind boggling player to watch for me because he shoots just about 33% on pull up threes per game. He, t- I mean, not per game, th- just in general takes, I think five pull up threes per game right now but also has the best first step in basketball. Probably like, I think it's, if it's not top three, I mean, if it's not the best, it's top three. Um, like there was a, a moment in that Knicks game in transition. He has Evan Fournier on the back foot in the slot, but he pulls back and then takes the three after five seconds of holding the ball and, and letting somebody switch back onto him. And it's just like, he's still so good. Like, it's not meant as Ant Edwardson. Like, the dude is 20 years old, averaging 22 points per game on above league average true shooting, playing really damn good basketball. And there's still that much room for him to improve in some of his, like, I, I don't know how much that's going to improve because that's been a thing for him for forever, is like his wiring and, and how he wants to attack. But he's just, uh, th- that that team overall is so fun to watch. I I, I, I love the shout. I'm, they're They're so enjoyable. Well, Caitlin, uh, I had an absolute blast today. It is starting to snow again outside just after it looked like it was all going to melt. Um, So I will probably be shoveling my driveway relatively soon. Uh, I am sure you will be eating an outshine popsicle as it continues to snow. If it is snowing where you're at. Um, Thank you for taking the time to everyone listening. Thank you for listening. And of course, have a good rest of your day. Most importantly, well, most importantly, have a good rest of your day, but also, Please be, go, be sure to go rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We really want to hear from you and get some feedback. Let us know what you have thought of the new pod format so far. We're really enjoying it. Uh, we'll be back again with a new episode on Monday. Thanks for listening, Caitlin. I'll talk to you later.